Welcome to The Fight with Teddy Atlas. I'm Rob Moore filling in today for our friend Ken Rideout, and I'm joined by boxing legend and the world's newest Zoom and FaceTime extraordinaire expert, Teddy Atlas. Teddy, how are you feeling today? Okay. Um, hope everybody out there is feeling good, uh, more importantly, and um, everybody and their families are healthy and safe with what's going on. I, you know, we um, try to be transparent up front about everything. And so I just felt that I should, there's a reason why you're not here. Um, Ken, is, Ken is in California. We've been doing the, obviously like everybody else, doing the quarantine thing. And um, the social distancing. You can't get any more distant than me and Ken, you know, California, New York. <laughs> we don't have to worry about it, uh, infecting each other. But the, usually the last few we've done it here, you're here uh, managing things and producing things. And now you're not. So I just thought it would, we don't have to say anything. But um, I'd like to be upfront with everybody. I just got tested. Uh, haven't been feeling great. Been doing everything that everyone's doing, you know, with the quarantining and the self-distancing, but uh, all the social distancing. But just recently ha haven't been great, but no big deal. Just I don't have any of I don't have any fever. Or just been really tired and uh, a little short of breath and just um, a chest cold, which could just be bronchitis and just a regular cold. But my family who cares about me, uh, we're all lucky to have family. They insisted I get tested and I did. And it takes 72 hours to get the results. Just want to be responsible and, you know, be honest with you, not being, uh, you know, any kind of the hero, you know, uh, but I'm not concerned at all about me. I just hope that, you know, my family and, uh, and other people are, are good and I wouldn't want to obviously in any way, uh, hurt them. So got the test done, uh, you know, continue to do what we've been doing, uh, you know, staying home. And uh, 72 hours, I get the results. Uh, they they did start me on a Z pack only because of the the symptoms that you know it's a possibility they're consistent with the virus <coughs> with the virus symptoms. Um, but I I honestly I, I feel I feel fine, just a little tired get tired sometimes uh, a little more than normal but uh i i i feel blessed i feel very very blessed and fortunate and also that even if i was to have it um i got a, i got a i got a family looking out for me i got a my concern is to look out for them that like i said that's my concern i i really have no worries at all and I don't obviously have 
any severe symptoms at all, like some people have. So, you know, um, for me, I just want to make sure that people, my family's good and that other people are good. And it just reminds me of how fortunate I am. And we are, most of us, if we have family and we have uh, somebody who can look out for us if we are feeling a little bit, uh, you know, off, whether it's just being sick normally or, God forbid, being affected by this uh, this virus that has attacked our, our, our world, um, our people. But uh, I'm, I'm so lucky, you know, and it makes me think about and pray for the people out there that aren't as lucky, uh, that aren't as fortunate to have somebody looking out for them, you know. And I would just say, you know, I'm not telling anyone how to behave. You people are all good people. You probably behave better than me already. But let's just remember how, you know, just just um, remember how fortunate we are always to have family. Always. It doesn't have to be uh, a dire situation or or potentially dire situation or a scary situation to kind of just remember, you know, and that we are fortunate to have people that care about us, that are there for us, that look out for us. And, um, and for the people that don't, when we can, we should look out for them. We, we should um, do whatever we can uh, to be helping people that, that can use help. Not, not just when there's a situation like this, but at all times, because as, as affected as we are right now, just by knowing what's going on and by worrying about what's going on and by seeing what's going on and by praying for people that have been affected, there are people in this world that are affected every day. It doesn't have to be a virus. They're affected by whatever the problems are that they're suffering from. And um, we're, we're so good as people when things are bad. We really are. I, I love you. <laughs> you people, it's amazing. Like, it's, you care about others. Let's just be that way all the time. Well, even when, when something doesn't knock on your doorstep that could be uh, as scary as this thing is right now. So that's all. I, I, I'm sure, I'm, I, I know I'm fine, but I just thought it would be proper to be up front, you know, God forbid, all of a sudden, I'm not around for a little while, you know, for a couple of weeks, I get sick, which I won't. But, um, you know, at least I should be honest about it and honest about why you're not here, because obviously I told you not to come and I had to tell you, you know, what, you know, what was going on. And, um, and I just, that's it. I just want to be honest with you and, but still want to talk to you and still want to, you know, because we, like I said, we're blessed that whatever it is, if it's a cold or if it happens to be some attached to this virus, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm okay. And I want to be able to talk to you guys. And, um, and part of it is being able to continue to live as normal life as we can in abnormal times, you know, yeah. uh, and, and do the things that we're blessed enough to do that, uh, that we have opportunities to do. And so uh, just say to everybody out there that uh, please be careful. Please continue doing all your social distancing. This is a very, you know, scary time for everybody. And um, continue to, 
quarantine, self-quarantine and look out for each other and and uh, love each other and we'll be fine. We'll be good. We've we we are uh, we always overcome things. We we've done we've done it since we uh since we since we came onto this planet, since we started walking straight. You know, we used to walk walk a little crooked by the way. You know? We used to have a little more hair, you know? <laughs> and then when we started walking straight, uh ever since that day we've been we've been overcoming things. And we'll continue to overcome. We'll continue to do that. And we'll continue to do it maybe with a thought that we haven't had in the past where even when things are right, again, we'll always think about the people that don't have things that are ever right. And uh, so just just take care of each other, uh, you know, and uh, let's talk boxing. Yeah, well, um, I think I, I speak for everyone uh, tuning in when I say, you know, we're all wishing you uh, all the best and hoping for a speedy recovery, really regardless of, of what you have, if it's just, you know, a cold or if it is, in fact, um, the uh, the coronavirus that, that all too many people are dealing with right now. Yeah, thank you, Rob. I just hope to God, it, you know, my family's good and all people, and like I said, that everybody out there that has it, um, to say a prayer for all those people that have it, that have been affected by it, and and that everybody everybody is is going to be okay, um, you know. And like I said, just do what the scientists and the doctors have asked us to do, and well, you're all doing it. So just keep doing that. It, it's a you know, it's a tricky disease. It's a sneaky disease. Yeah. You know, you 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 can feel you can feel fine. Who knows if I do have it. I, when I could have had it without knowing the symptoms, the symptoms have just started showing up. But yeah. who knows? It's to use a, a boxing analogy. We do talk boxing. Um, it's it's tricky. It's it's like Jersey Joe Walcott, the great Jersey Joe Walcott. You know, he's one of what a great fight he was. People don't know enough about him, heavyweight champ. But he used to turn and walk away from you. You know, and then you'd start going after him, and bang, he turned back. And you, you thought you were okay. You know, you thought you were being left alone. And then all of a sudden, he was on top of you. And this disease is tricky that way. You know, you, 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 think you're, you think you're fine, you don't think about it, and next thing you know, you don't know. Uh, yeah. So everybody, just, just be cautious and be smart, you know always talk about that we're all in a fight life is a fight well you guys know how to fight but fight smart fight smart because those are the best fighters right it's it's not the guys that are the strongest it's the guys that are the smartest so let's all fight smart and let's talk about boxing i'm sorry no, uh, I I know the uh, the audience always appreciates and respect respects your honesty, Teddy. So um, just coming out and and talking about it is uh, I'm sure much appreciated. Um, so today we're going to be uh, doing a Q and A session. Thanks to everyone who sent in their questions by social media, uh, both to Teddy's handles on Twitter and Instagram, and then also the uh, the Fight Podcast um, handles. So thank you for doing that and. Uh, uh, Teddy, I know this uh, 
this Saturday, tomorrow. We're actually recording this on um, Friday, April 17th. Um, tomorrow, ESPN is doing a, uh, a full spread of old fights, uh, everything from Ali Frazier to a number of Mike Tyson fights. And uh, before we started recording today, you shared a story with me about uh, Mike Tyson and Larry Holmes and uh, the iconic fight that those two had together. Uh, so I'd love for, for the audience to also be able to hear that story from you. So I'll turn it over to you to dive into that. It's a story I don't think it's really been out there. It's an interesting story. So as Rob just said, I'm going to be asked to on SportsCenter to to talk about, to kind of promote the whole day of boxing. Because ESPN has a fabulous, fabulous uh, treasure chest of fight films that they bought for $80 million years ago from Bill Caton. Him and Jim Jacobs had collected this fight film, Big Fights Incorporated, and they bought, they bought it from him. And, of course, those were the two managers, the two original managers of Tyson. And when Tyson was about 15 years old, obviously I was training him. And me, him, and Cus, we were watching a Larry Holmes fight back in the days when the fights, you remember, Rob, when the fights and all the fans remember, back in those days it was on network television on Saturday, Sunday afternoons, while we were sports, NBC, whatever. I don't remember what it was on. I don't remember who he was fighting. But um, there, there was Larry Holmes, you know, fighting in our living room. And we're watching it. And Cus, the great Customano, you know, my mentor, and he says to, to me, you know, your guy, <laughs> meaning there's this kid sitting over there that was 15 years old, but was probably about 210 pounds already, solid, you know. And um, he says he could beat Larry Holmes right now if it was only a three-round fight. But he doesn't have the experience to maintain it beyond three. Then he would, you know, break down. But one day he will have that experience. And because of a flaw, and then he turns to Tyson, because of a flaw in Larry Holmes, that you can see here, you will knock him out with a right hand over his jab. Because when he throws his jab, he doesn't move his head. He stays stationary in one place. And if you're not afraid to throw the punch, and by then you won't be. And if you're not hesitant to throw it and not worried about getting hit, you can time the right hand right over it and you'll knock out Larry Holmes. So. Here it is, fast forward years later, and of course I'm gone from Tyson. I'm training fighters, I'm living in New York, and Larry Holmes and Mike Tyson are getting in the ring. And actually, the, it was a couple days before the fight, and I wonder if he's, I'm about to mention somebody, I wonder if he watches the podcast, I'm sure he does, but a friend of mine, Randy Gordon, he used to be the commissioner of New York. He used to be the Ring Magazine editor, I believe. And he also did commentary uh, for ESPN. And so 
we were talking and we, he said, who do you like in a fight? He said, of course, Tyson. And I believe he said he liked Holmes. So I said, no, Tyson's going to knock him out. I said, I'll make you a bet. I'll make you a bet for a steak dinner in a good restaurant where I only win if Tyson knocks him out. So he said, all right, I'll take that bet. As a matter of fact, I'm feeling a little cocky. I'll, I'll take it a step further. I should have made it odds. I should have said, <laughs> give me four to one. You know? yeah. But I, I, I wasn't thinking that way. I said, matter of fact, even better. If he doesn't knock him out with a right hand, I don't win. He's going to knock him out with a right hand. Even better, he's going to knock him out early. Because I figured that since he was 15 years old, he was told he was going to knock out Larry Holmes with a right hand. If you know that and you have that information, that belief, you're not going to wait until the 10th round to do it. You're going to yeah. do it early. Sure enough. So Randy Gordon must have <clears> thought I was crazy. He said, all right, you got that bet. And there I am <coughs> watching the fight. And all I knew in my mind, I knew Tyson was going to knock him out. And I just was hoping it was with the right hand. And sure enough, in the fourth round, Holmes throws a jab, bang. The right hand comes over, down goes Holmes. You know, and I think I remember Gordon saying, how did you know? How did you know? Um, but I also, and, and I, I, I love Randy. Randy's a good guy. He's got a radio show. Give him a little plug. He's got a radio show, him and Jerry Cooney, two good guys. But Randy, you still owe me that steak dinner. <laughs> I never collected. It's too never funny. Collected. Never collected. But um, so... I, I that's a story I'm going to tell on ESPN on SportsCenter, um, and I think it's a story that will just add a little uh, color, so to speak, to the you know to addressing these fights and uh, something to think about, something for people to be aware of when they watch uh, that whole day long of fights. You know, yeah, Will Frazier, Tyson. It's it's a it's a great list of fights, and if you're a fight fan, you're gonna be in heaven. It's it's gonna be like the Twilight Zones saga, you know, where sometimes at certain times of the year they show all the Twilight Zone uh, things, or or all the honeymooners. If you're a honeymooner fan with with uh, Jackie Gleason, if you're a fight fan, boy oh boy, you're gonna you're gonna be in heaven. Yeah, Teddy, just. On that note, quick question for you, just out of my own curiosity. Um, how often are you watching some of these old fights? I know that you know you had uh, incredible access to that catalog of fights when you were with Cuss and the Catskills, but um, other than times like these where, where they're actually put on a channel like ESPN, given the fact that there's no new sports on, are you, uh, are you going back and watching some of these old fights? Yeah, I watch them when they're available. Uh, I don't I never, I didn't steal any, <laughs> and nobody even flinched me when I left. You know, when I walked out of Catskill, uh, they were they were sixteen millimeter film, Rob, back in those days. So yeah. you know, but um, <laughs> so I, I don't have a closet full of those films. I watch them when they're available. 
I love to watch them when they're available and, uh, you know, especially certain ones, obviously. When I, when they had someone last week on ESPN, they had the Thriller in Manila, which would be one of the ones that I'll be talking about. And, you know, you watch it because of the history and because you want to see it again and because of the drama of that fight, the action, everything, right? But you almost wince a little bit at the brutality of it. Yeah. It just as a human being, even though I'm in boxing my whole life, I still am human. And, and you just, it's almost like difficult to watch sometimes. And, yeah. and I appreciate everything else of it. Don't get me wrong. But it's, maybe it's me being in a business. I don't know. But uh, knowing Ali's fate afterwards, yeah. his Parkinson's and the, you know, many late years of his life that he was trapped inside his body, so to speak. And I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, it, you know that that fight had something to do with that. Not all, but something to do with that. And um, so when you're watching it and you see and you're reminded of the pure brutality, the just the thudding punches, you know, something I'm going to talk on ESPN when they have me uh, kind of, you know, preview it on SportsCenter before it starts showing a half hour later and before the marathon of fights, these great fights get shown on ESPN. One of the things I'm going to talk about is the drill in Manila that nobody has ever brought up. I don't know if they're aware of it or if they think in those, in those ways, but part of the reason why the fight was so brutal, so damaging, and both fighters left pieces of themselves, don't make any mistake. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. They left pieces of themselves in the ring that night. Part of the reason is they had dissipated as athletes, as great athletes. They, they had eroded. Their skills had eroded. But their character, their will, their pride, their heart, it was still full. Mm-hmm. So here you yeah, got guys that they don't have the skills anymore, but they still got the will, the pride, the heart, the character. And, but they're, they're sitting ducks. They're there to get hit easier. Yeah. Because of the erosion of time, of their physical skills. And it made for a magnificent display of just, how far we will go if we're determined enough and trained enough, how far we'll go to accomplish something, to be great. We'll go to a dangerous place. What's inside of us? We saw that. But it was, it was also something that was destructive. And it was something that, you know, was um, there was a price to pay. And the other part of it that made it 
really, really more brutal was back in those days, I'm going to point this out on, I don't think it's ever been pointed out on ESPN. Back in those days, Rob, they still used, they were ever glass gloves, if I remember correctly, and they still used horse hair. So here it is in the late rounds where both fighters are fighting in Manila and it's hot and they're dumping water on them and the gloves are getting drenched and they're banging. The horse hair started to separate where you could actually, if you look at it, you could actually see in the middle of the glove that it started to separate and it was, it was folding on one side and the other where there was a gap, a space, mm. where literally they were hitting each other with their knuckles at that point because of the separation of the horse hair. Yeah. And the drenching of the water that helped separate it. Oh, yeah, brutal. Really brutal. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are excited to uh, to watch that on uh, ESPN. It's great that they're able to dip into that catalog. It's earning its $80 million at this point in time, given the fact that there's nothing else to be showing. Uh, it's either that or watching people play video games. So um, it's uh, it's certainly uh, certainly good for the fans to be able to go through back through that catalog. Um, we're going to be putting this up on Monday, so uh, that will have already aired on Saturday. But uh, I'm guessing many of the fans will have have tuned into it, just given the fact that it's uh, focused on boxing. Um, so we'll dive into the questions here now, Teddy. Um, the first one comes from uh, Dono two zero 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 one on Twitter, and his question is about uh, the heavyweights. Um, it is who is strongest mentally out of Joshua Wilder and Fury? Well, by far Fury. I mean, after the way Joshua, you know, my brothers and sisters in London, you know, I love you, right? And and listen, Joshua came back and redeemed himself. I, I will qualify that, but after the way Joshua had spit the bid in the first Ruiz fight. And like I said, I give him credit for the comeback. You could you really see Joshua getting off the floor, you know, as Fury did in the first water fight two times? I don't think you could. I don't think you could, honestly, if you're going to be honest about it. And the same question for Wilder: Could you see him getting off the floor the way Fury did, you know, after? After Wilder not just got beat by Fury, but dissipated mentally in that fight. Look, I understand he got hit behind the end the third round with a with a punch that threw his equilibrium off. But if you really know what you're looking at, you could also see him evaporating, you know, mentally in a mm -hmm. fight, being pushed backwards, not being able to be the bully not being able to land that sledgehammer, not being able to be the boss. And you could see him disappearing. And then he, you know, maybe it was just a bad moment, but then he blames, blames it on the suit that he wore into the ring. There's my answer. Can, can, so with that, can you say that Wilder is stronger mentally than Fury, I don't think so. 
I don't think Fury or Joshua uh, or Wilder and Joshua could make that statement based on the evidence in front of us uh, if we're honest about it and we examine it in a proper way, unemotionally, but just in a way that it should be examined. That, you know, again, the way that Wilder dropped, and he's some puncher that Wilder, maybe the hardest puncher ever in heavyweights, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you got Joe Lewis, you got Mike Tyson, you know, you, you got Max Bear, you got Ernie Shavers, you know, uh, you got George Foreman. But he's one of the hardest. And after the way that he dropped Fury, again, I can't imagine Wada off of the way he behaved in the last fight with Fury. And again, I understand he got hit this punch. I get it. But everything put together, I can't imagine if he had been hit with that punch that he'd be able to get off the floor twice. Right. The way that Fury did. So I'm going to go with uh, no contest in that one. Yeah, with Fury. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually such an interesting one, too, because, um, you know, it's often discussed Fury's own mental battles and um, coming back from from really, you know, uh, almost unimaginable levels of depression and, and considering taking his own life. And it's it's almost like the that such low um, valley that he faced, he's able to come back from it more mentally tough than almost anyone. And uh, it's it's just interesting to see. Hey, it's part of what made him mentally tough. How about that? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, rather than his weakness, that might be his strength. That that he's he's been there and he's seen things that we haven't seen. He's been able to think about and um, envision things that we haven't been able to. He's been to the brink. You know, he's been to the edge of the cliff. He's been to the dark caves where he wasn't sure he was going to come out of. And he understands there's nothing darker. Anything else he faces can't be darker. It can't be undoable. Maybe that's his strength. Maybe that's yeah. his power. Maybe that's his light. I would say, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's good. That's a good point. Be careful, Ken. You might lose your spot. You might lose your spot, Ken. I love you. I love you, Ken. But you might lose your spot. Make sure you don't become Wally Pap. You know, the guy that, that uh, Lou Gehrig replaced. <laughs> Remember that one? I don't think I could rise to the level of our, uh, of our good friend, Ken. I'm sure he's tuning in, so uh, I know he won't, he won't be worrying. The next question, uh, also from Twitter, it's from... Nico Sanchez R underscore ID. Do you think that Floyd Mayweather Jr. can become a great trainer? Um, I'm guessing, Teddy, you, you saw the um, news and the post that uh, Mayweather put up recently. Um, it was basically just a post on Instagram a few days ago that uh, showed him training his nephew. And um, in the caption, he basically noted that, um, you know, during this time of isolation, he's He's feeling inspired to help others. And um, given the recent passing of his uncle, Roger Mayweather, uh, who is obviously his trainer for a long period of time, he's, um, he's looking to get into training. Uh, so this question, again, is just looking for your thoughts on 
um, if Mayweather Jr. could become a great trainer? First of all, two things. One, see how we forget sometimes with these great fighters, how they're human like all of us. You know, here's a Floyd who you couldn't hit in the backside with a handful of buckshot if he stood right in front of you. And yet he gets hit with something that we can all get hit with, the loss of somebody close to him. And what is he now? He's not a fighter. He's not anything. He's a human being who hurts. And um, I feel for him. I understand. And who hurts and who is thinking about, you know, his uncle and is thinking about how to pay tribute to him. So here's a guy that maybe you, you hated for a minute. You thought was this for that. You know, that's the way it is in the Big Apple when you're a celebrity. I get it. Um, but we should be careful when we just start thinking we know somebody. We should be careful. Maybe we don't know them just because we see them on TV. And we think that we know them by the things they're attached to. You know, maybe we don't understand their sensitivities, their, their heart beyond what the gladiator part of that heart exhibits. But the heart is a person. Maybe we don't. Maybe we, you know, we think, oh, they're selfish or something like that. And here's a guy who's not thinking of himself. He's thinking about his uncle and about that loss and about how to maybe pay tribute to him. Um, the other thing I want to say before I answer the question is that obviously I have these questions in front of me. You gave them to me. And I just want to say that you guys that asked them, they're good questions. Yeah, they are. They are. They're smart, well-thought um, intelligent questions. You guys are intelligent. You guys are really smart. And and I'm half joking, but I'm really being serious. And you know, um a lot of times it goes to show you that I always used to say on ESPN when calling the fights that the fight fan for me, I know I'm a little prejudiced, but they're the smartest fans. That that they, they know the sport. That they they really are. They're smart. They're, they're they're really. I know they're smart baseball fans and basketball fans and football fans. I get it. But for me, they're really smart. The you guys, the fight fans, they're really invested in the sport and educated about the sport. And um, and again, proof by when I looked at these questions, I said these every one of them was a good question. Where sometimes, quite honestly, you get dumb questions. You know, it happens. You know, you get dumb questions. You, you, you'll be out on the street and somebody say, hey, and they ask, Teddy, can I ask you something? And they ask, you know, a question and you're like, you know, you, you must have been, like your connection with boxing must have been like Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, 5, and 6. But beyond that, beyond watching Rocky movies, um, I don't know that you're really that educated about the sport you're asking a question about. So when you get dumb questions, you really do appreciate the ones we got here that are really smart questions. And my answer would be, yeah, he could be a good trainer. Yeah, he could be a great trainer. Yeah, 
but it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee because just because somebody was great at what they did, and in this case, athletically, and they know the sport, they know the, they know what matters. Um, that doesn't mean that they know how to transfer that knowledge to somebody else. That is what it takes to be a trainer. To be able to, Customato once told me when he was obviously uh, molding me as a trainer, he said to me, you see that shelf of Britannica, um, I think it was called Britannica Encyclopedias. Yeah, Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, Encyclopedia Britannica. You see that? It's got all the knowledge in the world there, Teddy Atlas. All of it. Look, right in front of you. But what good does it do if you can't take that knowledge and transfer it to someone and give it to someone? It only, what good is it at? It just sits on a bookshelf. And that always stayed with me. He was teaching me about the importance of being a teacher. It wasn't enough for me to be smart, hopefully, and to know something, hopefully. But I had to be able to give it to someone else. Have that gift. Have that, it's a gift. Have that ability. Have that trait. Have that trade. Have that craft. Just like Floyd has his craft. It doesn't automatically mean that he has that ability as a teacher, because that's what a trainer is. It's not a guy who goes two five over there, two six rounds there, two ten uh, ten rounds over, and then come back and see me in a in an hour. No, it's about teaching. And so Floyd knows all the things that he knows. So the answer is fair. Yeah, he could be great, but it's not. It's not automatic. We don't know yet if he possesses the ability, the quality, the qualities to transfer that knowledge to somebody else, to be a teacher, mm -hmm. you know, to be a trainer. Sometimes the athletes, the great ones like him, they do things, you figure, oh, he'll be a great teacher. But they're doing it instinctually, innately. For them, it's automatic. But it doesn't mean that they know how to tell you what they're doing. They just know how to do it. And I'll give you an example. I won't name names because I don't want to hurt no feelings. But if we're going to be honest, I think we try to make this show that, right? We don't care we, other than we feel we're telling the truth. We don't care how, what position it's going to put us in uh, with somebody or hurt us with somebody or... Uh, leave us out with somebody as long as we feel we're telling the truth and we're not doing it attached to any personal agendas. We're not out to get nobody. We, there are commentators through the years, <coughs> excuse me, that have been great fighters and you would figure, hey, he's going to be a great commentator. He's going to be a great analyst, great fighter. Until he opens his mouth on the air with a microphone in front of him. And some of them, some of them, some of them are good. But some of them haven't been good. But they were great fighting. But yet they weren't able to explain what they did so well. It's so great.
but they couldn't explain it to an audience mm -hmm. because they didn't understand it to that level. They just knew it instinctually, innately, naturally. It came to them. But they didn't know how to break it down. Same thing for a trainer. You don't know just because the guy was that good as a fighter, he's going to be that good as a trainer. And you, some of the, some of the best commentators and maybe best trainers in what we're talking about actually are guys that weren't the best fighters or the best baseball players or the best basketball players. And they become great coaches. You hear about it all the time. Great commentators. But they wanted the best when they were playing. That's why they're so good at being a trainer. Because they had, and, and as an analyst, because they didn't just do it naturally. It didn't come to them naturally. It didn't come to them easily. They had to be a student of it. Mm -hmm. They had to break it down in their minds. They had to digest it. They had to understand it. And by understanding it, digesting it, thinking of it, they were able then to have all the things that you need, all the components, the abilities, the, everything that you need to then teach it to someone else, to explain it to someone else, to give it to someone else, whether with a microphone or the gym as a trainer. So sometimes that's very true. That the ones that they did it, it's important they did it so they know what it's about. But they didn't do it at a high, high, high level. But what they can do at a high level is teach and commentate because of what I just said. Because it didn't come natural. They had to know about it. They had to learn it. Good question out there. Yeah, these questions are terrific. And in fact, it's funny because... Um it's fitting that, uh, that I do the Q and a episodes because I'm able to outsource these good questions through social media and not have to come up with them off the cuff. So, uh, that's, that's my edge on, on, uh, Ken. So this one's coming in from Instagram. It's from he, he, Alex P. Um, he asks, what's your take on UFC 249 being canceled? Seems Dana had it all lined up. And then the suits at Disney ESPN shut it down. Bummer for fans, but also lots of money at stake for UFC and Endeavor. Um, so again, this this is the fight that was scheduled for uh, actually tomorrow night. Again, we're recording on Friday, uh, April 17th. Um, Dana White had it set up at a Indian reservation in California. And um, it's my understanding that uh, he got a call from Disney uh, slash ESPN saying that he needed to shut it down. And, and it's been reported that basically the uh, governor of California, Gavin Newsom was kind of the one who, who put his foot down here. So uh, Teddy would love to hear your thoughts on it. Another good question, you know, Rob. Um, I thought, and I still think, yes, obviously we need to be careful and responsible so much with coming back with everything we do with this virus um, in our lives. But that we also need to start figuring out how to come back in as responsible a way as possible because, yeah, 
the virus has and can and continues to create havoc and fear and sickness and even death. It kills people sometimes. And so that's our first priority, and I understand. But I also understand what Dana White understands. I understand that we also have to come back at some point in a responsible way, but we have to come back because if we don't at a certain point, our economy will collapse. Yeah. But that's dangerous too. Very. I'm just, so you have to balance the two and it's not easy. It's like trying to walk a, a tightrope without falling. And, you know, it's, it's, but you do have to walk it. But you do have to understand both sides that, yeah, we got to continue our vigilance with this terrible disease and being responsible and getting rid of it. And we will. But the longer we go, there was somebody out there that at the beginning of all this said, be careful that the cure is not worse than the disease. And when they said it, nobody understood what they meant. I think we understand now that you don't want to get in a position where, yeah, while we're fighting it, while we're doing all that, we have another disease, a disease called a collapse of our economy that that can damage people, that can destroy people, that can hurt people, that can kill people. Poverty can kill people. Yeah. What about the mentality of people that are losing everything and now they're committing suicide? I mean, it's something that no one wants to talk about, but it has to be talked about if we're going to have an honest conversation about the enormity of what this virus has brought on us, the scope of it. Yeah. So, yeah, the virus first and be responsible. But don't forget what's nipping at our heels. There's another enemy. It's not a virus, but it's something that has to be paid attention to. It has to be paid attention to. And that's what I just said. And Dana White was, I believe that's what he's paying attention to, both sides. And I think that his idea, I'm not knocking anyone, but I think that Dana's idea was right, that if we could do it, we have to come back. If we can do it in the most stable, safe way, responsible way possible. Everyone's tested. No audience. Put it isolated, okay? No audience, okay? Um, only the fighters. They've been tested, okay? Uh, only a referee. Been tested, okay? Uh, then, then we got the cornermen. Maybe you eliminate one of the cornermen. Make it one cornerman. They've been tested. No judges. I don't know if Dana had this in mind, but my thought would be, he's a smart guy. He was probably ahead of me with this. My thought was, you want to minimize the people there. So no judges. Let them, let them come in off their computers and, and let it come right onto a screen right at ringside, and we can tabulate it from that. Uh, they, they can be home doing it. They, that's, that's three more people. I think the UFC uses three judges. Boxing yep. does. Yeah, they're three as well. 
something Rogan's uh, been quite upset about, wanting there to be as many as 12. Well, three less people in the arena. You know, and then same thing, commissioner, one commissioner, no assistant, no this, no that, one commissioner. So you limit the numbers. Everyone's tested. You have as much of a vacuum as you can, as much of the controlled environment as you can, and we're starting to come back. We're starting to come back, baby, because we've got to come back at some point. So I was... I was kind of on Dana's side. I'm not arguing with the people that shut it down. I'm not. I'm just giving my thoughts because they're thinking I get the right thing too on the other side of it in their mind. I get it. But I'll finish it with this. I talk about a tightrope between, you know, first comes the disease and the responsibility of human life. Nothing comes before that. But the economy... That touches human life, too. And so we're trying to balance the two. And that's it. But there's one thing, Rob, that can't come into play. It can't. It can't. It can't. And that's politics. And I'm not accusing anybody. I'm not saying the governor made a call and that's why it was behind or, or that that they gave in or, or I gave in to, you know, some thought. No, I, I, I trust that their decisions are earnest for the right places. All I'm saying is I have, I live in the real world. We all do. And politics is as disgusting as this is to have to talk about in such times with life and death on the line. Politics has been used out there. I'm not saying it was here. I'm not. But we must not, we must not, as people that care about life, we must not allow politics to come into these places, to make these decisions or at all to influence these. That's, that's, that's all I would say, and that's my answer to that question. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's something where when I saw Dana, uh, continuing to pursue it, I actually, I admired it. I was like, you know, so much is being canceled. So much is, um, kind of being taken away from us as people because of this virus that seeing someone kind of almost standing up to it, whether or not it was, you know, uh, responsible from a health standpoint or, or whatnot. Um, you see fighting as the kind of one sport that could come back because of the points you outlined. Uh, it was actually fun to see this guy who's known as a cowboy um, who does what he wants, kind of pushing it, pushing back and driving this thing forward, especially given the nature of it being a fight that they had tried to make happen, you know, four other times. Um it does seem like he is going to be the first to uh, put on the first sporting event. He's saying that he's now looking at uh, May 9th for uh, having a UFC card. And I think that, you know, we, we do need someone like that who's, who's pushing, pushing things forward and um, kind of giving hope to people that, you know, uh, there is a way to stand up in some senses against this virus and still get stuff done. So I'll uh, grab one word yeah. that you used. 
as long as he keeps it with this word. And that's why I'm, on, I'm with Dana. I'm with him on this. As long as there's one word, the word you used earlier, I used it too. Responsibility, responsibly. That, that it has to be done as responsible as, as humanly possible. That, that's the key. And, and that's why I gave credence and thought to Dana being able to do this in a way that could be okay because he was figuring it out in the most responsible manner that he could. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, before jumping into the next question, I'll just highlight the fact that um, there's an interesting uh, financial piece at play here where, um, and I'm sure a lot of these uh, organizations and then the networks are going to be sorting this out um, with like, you know, NBA and whatnot. But um, basically Disney guaranteed the UFC uh, $750 million for um, the rights to broadcasting 42 events. They've broadcast just seven this year. And it's not much of a surprise that Dana was kind of seeing this as something where it's like, okay, there's now less than 40 weeks left in the year. Um, and he's on the hook for 35 more fights. So, um, you know, his effort to, to make sure that the UFC is getting that $750 million, I'm guessing that he's able to make it happen and able to do it in a responsible way. So we'll, uh, we'll, essentially be able to see that play out over the, over the coming weeks. I think I would jump into that with Rob is that in these unseen ever before times, we're all trying to figure it out as we go. You know, people that can't pay their mortgages, now it's being told that you don't have to pay your mortgage right away. There's adjustments, there's leniency, there, there's adaptations by everybody, whether it's the banks, the government, saying that if someone can't pay their rent, give them some leeway because they're out of, because of the circumstances, they're out of work. I would think that some of that would play. I would think that some of that would have to play into that deal. That, you know, he would be given an adjustment of time with that contract. Yeah. I would, I would think. Yeah, I would imagine some lawyers are going to be um, going to be locked in in rooms uh, sorting this one out. But um, uh, this next next question uh, again coming from Twitter, Sean Riley, nineteen eighty eight. I love this question. Thank you, Sean. Um, Teddy, the question is not who do you think. Last name was my mother's maiden name. My mother was Mary Riley, spelled R I L E Y. How does he spell his? He's got two L's, but we'll count it. You're in. You're in, you're in. Uh, the question is not who do you think is the greatest ever, but who is your favorite fighter ever? It's a good question. I mean, obviously it's different than the greatest because there is a separation of the two. Because if I use an example, say, if somebody asks me who's the greatest president of all time in the United States, I might say Abraham Lincoln because of the things he accomplished and that I respect um, because of his mark on history. But if someone said, who's your favorite president of all time? I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm not, I might say Ronald Reagan or somebody because maybe because of his personality. Because I thought he was a good president, but I like maybe his quotes. I like the way he talked. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so those are the differences. Um, and also one other thing before I answer it. When you ask, answer a question like this, I think for me, you have to make a criterion. You have to make, uh, you have to come up with a formula that you think insists on, gives you the best chance to, to coldly get to the right answer. And for me, my favorite fighter, I would have had to have seen him mm. in real life. It had to be around my times, modern times more, if you will. I think I'm still modern times. <laughs> you're, we're doing this by, uh, via Zoom, and uh, you're basically being beamed to me from Staten Island, so I'd say we're in modern times here. Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> so, for me, the favorite fighter has to be someone I saw. The greatest fighter doesn't have to be. It could be someone I watched film on. I was blessed. I got a chance to watch the film with Customato. Jim Jacobs would send it up to Catskill. I, I could have watched film, 16 millimeter, um, or I could have just read about their accomplishments and, and the documentations of who they fought and, and, and who they beat and, and just go by black and white facts to come up with my thought about the greatest of all time. I didn't have to see them in person. But favorite, I think it's important you saw them. Because I think part of your favorite is, like I said about the difference with the president, Rob, how they make you feel. Yeah. That's what what your favorite is. Yeah, it's about how good they are, but it's your favorite. It ain't yours. It's, It's mine. He's mine. It's like my grandson. That's mine. It's Joe Jones. That's mine. Yeah, that's yours. So how does it make me feel? It's a tough question. It's a, some, very difficult because there's so many great ones. So I'm only answering because your last name is Riley. And it's my mother's main name. But it's a real tough one. I'm going to say Sugar Ray Leonard. Wow, that's awesome. Love it. He was so good, Rob, and he made me feel good. When he won the, when he won the gold medal in the 76 Olympics with the other five guys from the team, the greatest Olympic team ever, I, I think, the Spinks brothers, Leo Randolph, Howard Davis Jr. And they all won world titles except Howard Davis Jr., who came very close. And funny thing was, Howard Davis Jr. was a Val Barco Award winner for the best boxer in the Olympics. And, wow. and, that, and he was the only one that didn't win the world title. But he was a great boxer and a real traditional boxer. But it made me feel good to watch that team, my team, the United States of America, the best team. They beat the Cubans, and <clears throat> he beat the great Cuban fighter, Sugar Ray, and he had that great smile. And he wore his kid's picture on his shoe. Ah, he got seven up commercials. Fighters never got commercials. And he was so freaking good. He was fast. He had all the abilities that you want your, your great fighter to have. He, he had speed. He had power. 
He had, and all the other qualities. He had IQ. He could go inside. He could box. He could, he could do so many dimensional things. And at the end of the day, he was a freaking pit bull terrier when he had to be. Like he was in the Hearns, first fight with Hearns when he was behind. And Angelo Dundee, the late great Angelo Dundee, great quarterman, said, you're blowing it, kid. You're blowing it. And he went out there and he got the guy. So he had that tenacity. He had that special. And he had that it factor. When he got in the ring, he belonged there. He lit up the ring. Oh, he was good. Oh, he was good. Oh. And, and, and he's so good. Everyone out there knows that I love the guys from the 20s to 30s, the, the golden era of boxing. Where you're never going to have that era again. Can't exist. We'll fight this for 30 times a year, have 300 fights, 200 fights, 100 knockouts. The best will fight the best. I mean, it's the golden era. Great fighters. But he's one of the fighters that I put in any era. That's how good he was. I, I put him in any era. That's just, like I said, that's how damn good he was. And, um, you know, you can't have a, a favorite and a B and an A and a B. I, I'm capable of that. You know that. <laughs> I do indeed. I'm not going to do it. Well, I'm just going to say that, and I also love Roberto Duran and Pernell Whitaker, but you got to pick one. There it is. Sugar, Ray, Leonard, you got to be good, baby. If you can grab someone else's nickname, who was maybe the greatest of all time, you can't do that unless you're great. You can't. It's not allowed. It's not allowed. He did it. Very cool. Have you uh, have you spent any time with Sugar Ray, Teddy? Yeah, yeah. I, I've spent time. I have pictures on the wall somewhere of him and my son, me and him, my my young. My, oh, we're my good. Young, my battery is twenty percent. Uh-oh. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to work on that. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll figure it out. And um, see, we, full disclosure here, we don't hide nothing. We don't hide nothing. But um, one of the things I'm grateful for to him as a gentleman, as a person, I run the, most of you know I run a charity foundation that I care a lot about. It means a lot to me. <coughs> and um, 23 years we've been around the Dr. Atlas Foundation. We take care of people that need help. They fall through the cracks, you know. We help them out. That's all. And um, no more or less or less than any other good organization out there. But if it's a family that's got a sick child and the insurance doesn't cover the treatment program, we step in. We take care of it. If they have to fly out of state, we'll fly them out of state. If they need a handicap ramp, put up the handicap ramp. And... Um, if it's a mom who maybe is a single mom and she she got four kids and one of them got sick and she was out of work and no, you know, nothing of her own doing, all of a sudden she fell behind rent and she's going to get put out, uh, put into a shelter, we step in and we pay the rent. You know, maybe we pay the $3,000 that 
it might as well be 30,000 for her in that position. It's not a lot. We're not, that's, we're not that special. We just are what we are. And, um, and we'll step in and then that's all she needs because then when she gets back, she can catch up again, you know. We're just a bridge that gets people across maybe a difficult moment. Yeah. And Sugar Ray let it, the great Sugar Ray let it, flew from California to one of my dinners. And he, and he as one of my guests. I'll never forget it. That's fantastic. And listen, I had the great George Foreman there. I had the great Evander Holyfield there too. But when he flew in there, you know, it was pretty damn good. And uh, we had an artist. Matter of fact, he's the same guy who does this painting that we always that we always see. He can't. And behind me, of my dad, uh, he's passed now. But he was a great artist, Gabe Perillo. He he was a good man. And he would always come to my foundation and always give me a painting. So when he heard that Sugar Ray Leonard was going to be a guest, he said, Teddy, I'm going to paint a picture, a portrait of him. And you auction it off. Well, he painted an auction. We auctioned, he painted the picture. We auctioned it off, Rob, that night. And of course, Sugar Ray got up, auctioned it off, and he signed it. He wow. got $20,000 for it. Wow. $20,000. That's awesome. Sugar Ray Leonard's awesome. Yeah, I love it. Love that story too. Uh, Foundation is a is a really special organization. Um, I know you guys are doing a lot of special things during this this uh, coronavirus time. Um, and uh, for those who want to check it out more, um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. But it's drdratlasfoundation.com. dot com. He has two questions in there, Rob. I got it. We don't want to cheat somebody with the same name as my mom's maiden name. Ah, so next part of the question, Teddy, for you, who do you see as the greatest fighter of all time? You guys don't mind that, right? Hey, it's boxing. Bells. Bells, right? Boxing. Just, I'm just glad that I'm not at the point in my life where I'm so shot. I hear a bell, I start, you know, I just start throwing punches, you know? Thank God, thank God. Um, the la- the infamous landline, and uh, I think in the, uh, what what is your bottom right, my bottom left, I see the fax machine. We're suffering by not having my man Rob here, because he would have took care of that, because he's smarter than me, he's a good producer. Um, Listen, I already made the, uh, the, the explanation of why it's different between greatest and favorite. So the greatest, you don't have to have seen them. Maybe it's better if you saw them on tape. That's important. But you didn't have to be around there. And you know what he did because it's in the history books. And it's, it's a tough question. It's a great question. Um, but you have to go back in time, I think, as I touched on earlier to my favorite time, but you have to go back, not because of preference, just because of reality. Back in the 30s, 20s, 40s, whatever, you had more fights. You had more places for guys to fight, more clubs. 
And it was the biggest sport in the country, by the way, bigger than baseball. And you had more fighters. And you had the best fighters fighting each other. You didn't have what you have today where guys stay away from each other because they were different promoters or, you know, different or because they want to keep undefeated and they want to fight for a world title when they have 15 fights or 18 fights. You didn't even get near Madison Square Garden until you had 30 fights maybe. <laughs> I mean, forget about fighting for a world title. But the, you, the emphasis back then wasn't on manipulating a record or navigating a guy uh, through his career so he could get to a money place right away or that he could get on television uh, because he has an undefeated record. No. All you did back in those days, because there were so many good fighters, you wanted to develop your fighter to become the most experienced, the best fighter you could become. So you fought everybody because it didn't matter. You could fight somebody, Rob, and you could lose. That's like a death sentence in the minds of the promoters and managers today. Oh, my God. It wasn't a death sentence back then. It might be the best thing that ever happened to them because that might be the lesson, the experience that makes them a better fighter. And you could lose and you fight the next week, not the next month. The next week you fight another fighter and you were, you were right on a big stage. You were right in a good spot still because you were fighting good fighters because you belonged. Because you showed your worthiness. You showed your value. It didn't matter that you lost the fight. Because the people understood. These were all good fighters. Fighting each other. Getting better. And so, I'd have to go back. I mean, you had fighters that had 300 fights, 200 fights. I'd have to go back to that era. And I did. And it's tough to pick a guy. And but I did. Henry Armstrong. Three hundred fights, a hundred something knockouts. Um I mean Henry Armstrong won the featherweight, no junior titles. I'm not knocking guys that collect titles, you know, the way some people uh you know, collect coins or whatever. Um, um you know, or you know, collect hats whatever, or like, like our friend Ken, collect Ferraris. <laughs> that Ferrari addiction, it's a tough one to have. He's going to go nuts when he is. He's so sensitive. He's going to say, oh, no. He's going to turn to his wife, who's a beautiful lady, and he's got a beautiful family. And, and uh, he's going to turn and he said, oh, no, Teddy mentioned Ferrari again. Uh, people are going to be writing on the internet. Oh, you got Ferraris? Oh, you got Ferraris? You got. Oh, God. So, I. Henry Armstrong, he won the featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, no in between junior titles, full titles. And then he went and fought for the middleweight title against Severino Garcia, and they robbed him. They made it a 15-round draw. He really won the fight. He would have had four 
four full titles. So he had three, and he defended them. He defended them. Three full titles. He wants, you know, these guys nowadays, if they fight four times in a year, we're like, wow. Wow. You know, three times. You know, pretty good. But he once fought, you'd have to look in the record book, Rob, but I want to be accurate, but he once fought about 35 times in a year. Yeah. It was over 30. In one in a year. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So this, and he had the greatest nickname. You know, he had Hammerin' Hank and Homicide Hank. You didn't need to know nothing else. All you needed to hear was Homicide Hank. He must be a bad dude. He must be a he must be a serious man. This must be a serious actor here, and he was. And on top of all that, he had the style that put fannies in the seats. Aggressive, back you up, never stop punching. I mean, he was a punching machine. If they had punch stats back then, forget about it. Those people would have, their fingers would have disintegrated. Their fingers would have melted during a fight. Melted. They would have, they would have been like crying and people would say, <laughs> oh, what happened? I have no more fingers. They're, they're, my fingers, they're gone. They, they, they're gone. They evaporated. So, I mean, there's a lot of great ones. A lot of great ones. But um, that's one of them. That, he's my favorite. You know, he's uh, he's pretty damn special. Greatest of all time. Uh, you know, I know you got Ali. Um, we got 10, 10% left. But I know I know you got Ali. I know that you got, you know, Joe Lewis. Uh, I love uh, all those guys. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard to pick. And there's so many others that were great that people – Unfortunately, a lot of people don't even know who they are. Yeah. Um, Teddy, this has been fantastic. Uh, long episode today with uh, some really, really good questions coming in from the audience. Um, thanks for taking the time to do this. I know that uh, both myself and everyone else is uh, wishing you a, a quick recovery. Uh, I know, and I say this lovingly, you're a tough bastard, so I think you'll uh, you'll kick it quickly. And uh, keep us Keep us posted on uh, on everything. And thank you again, Teddy. Anything else? No, just um, when I – I'm fine. When I get better, can I get a ride in Ken's Ferrari? <laughs> Which one? The red one. The red one. red one. Thank you again. Thanks to the audience for uh, sending in the questions. We'll do another one of these um, sometime in the next month or so. Uh, Teddy, uh, all the best. We'll speak with you soon. Take care.